Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast exploring the latest decks, trends, and strategy for Magic's modern format. Every week and every episode, we're going to take a look at different ideas for the casual spike. People playing at local game stores, Magic Online, maybe even Arena, and figure out how we can level up our game, learn from one another, and hopefully get better at Magic on this journey together. My name is Stanislav, here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, is Shane Beers. What's up, Stan? How you doing, man? I'm doing very great. How are you? I'm good, man. Enjoying it. Nice and sunny here. I am excited to mention our other companion on this podcast from Chicago's northwest side. It's Dave, Big Daddy Harburger. Hello. 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 How are you guys? <laughs> Great. Enjoying being here, man. Great. And last but not least, on Chicago's north side is our token snowboy, Zach Coolhan. Hi, thanks for having me on. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing great. Feeling good, man. All right, Shane, where do we go from here? Guys, I actually liked a little bit, I'd like to know a little bit more about you all. Like, what are you, what are you into? What are you playing the most lately? I know, Stan, you dabble in standard, and then Dave is a hardcore limited grinder, and Zach, I think, only plays Scred Red. So, you know, what do you, what's, what's, tell me about you guys. How about you start, Shane? <laughs> oh man, put me on the spot. Yeah, so I um I played in like '95 with Ice Age and Fourth Edition, and then I then I was like, this game is not really for me. It's, it seemed you know it's it's I was 15. I didn't know Jack, so you know I was, I was casting like Frozen Shades and thought Mahamori Dijin was like the coolest card, and took a 19 year break. And uh, I've known Dave for an awfully long time, and he was. You know, he he would like we would do sealed for Innistrad every once in a while. He'd get a box and we'd just crack some packs. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And then when cons, right around when cons of Tarkir came up in September of 2014, I said to my girlfriend the the fateful words, Nicole, I think I really want to get into Magic: The Gathering. And here I am, uh, four years later, trying to start a modern podcast with you all and play too much. I think it's interesting that you knew right away that you wanted to get into magic, that it wasn't just, I want to play some games. This, this sounds fun. It, it almost <laughs> sounds like a lifestyle choice. Yeah. But this, this perfectly sums up Shane. Shane is one of those people who's just like, when he's in with something, he's in with both feet up to, you know, up to his neck immediately. <laughs> yeah. It was before it's, it's, it was. It's uh, yeah. I mean, you used to be super into like mopeds, right? Oh, I still am. I just, I just basically, I have one. It runs poorly, um, and also I got in two motorcycle accidents, so I, I ride a lot fewer motorized vehicles. Right. But yeah, you're right. I get, I get into things too hardcore. Magic has stuck, thankfully, over four years. Yeah. So, Dave, what's your story? <laughs> uh, my story is not too dissimilar from Shane's, other than um, so I used to, I started playing with revised. I um I stopped playing around Invasion Block and came back in uh, so that was maybe I think that's maybe like 2002 ish. I came back in 2009 with Zendikar, and I basically when I started up I was kind of like I'm just going to play limited forever, and I managed to do that until Shane said he wanted to get into 
into magic. And then he really liked constructed. So since we were pretty close friends, very close friends already, that's kind of understating it. Um, I just started playing constructed as well with him and kind of got pretty into modern as well. Uh, Cause it's a non-rotating format. I don't get to play all the time. I spend a lot of my time playing on moto and that's just kind of where I'm at. So I do a lot of draft. I do a lot of seals and now I'm playing a lot of modern too. Love it. Hey Zach, how you doing over there on the North side? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for asking. So I got into magic during seventh edition invasion and played pretty casually, you know, uh, at like a school kitchen table sort of type deal, very casual. No one's buying singles online. No one's sleeping their cards. And then I started from there getting more into EDH and getting into competitive magic that way. And then in 2012, uh, someone I knew was selling a Scred deck. So I bought into Modern that way and have been playing Scred consistently since then. Cool. Oh, and so like the, I like that your entire Modern identity is based around Scred. Yeah, I mean, for it wasn't for a while. It was more that I just didn't have other decks, but I grew to really enjoy the deck. And I have other, I own other decks, and I've played other decks, and I think I am able to do well with other decks as well. But I do enjoy what the deck has to offer, and it, it's fun. Not many other people play it. Thanks, Zach. Dan, you're up, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm here to help. Uh, let's see. I first learned how to play Magic um, basically right before uh, Mirrodin came out. Uh, a year or so before Meriden came out is when I learned. I was in seventh grade at the time. Um, and I played a little bit of constructed casual with like a lot of single cards and very few rares and basically combining invasion block pre-constructed decks together. Did you sleeve? I did not sleeve. I don't think so. Um, but I was really bad at it at the time and I was young and poor and my parents wouldn't let me buy cards with their money. So, uh, and, and also my high school had a magic the gathering club. And so oh. when I got to high school in ninth grade and tried playing with them, they were not nice and kind of bullied me. So I was super discouraged and gave up for a long time. And then, uh, years later, this doesn't sound, this doesn't sound anything like magic players. I know. Well, not anymore. Least, Most of the magic yeah. players I know these days are, are quite nice, but, uh, You're lucky. yeah, basically right toward the end of, um, Theros block, a friend of mine and I were hanging out on a lazy Sunday and we decided to stop by a comic book shop and saw some magic intro decks and bought them on a whim and spent the day a sunny day in the park playing magic. And it really snowballed from there. And then I got into competitive through limited and then standard. And then I met you guys and that kind of pushed me into modern more deeply. And now I'm your girlfriend must hate, hate us too. Well, I was playing magic before I met, my current partner uh, and I probably oh, okay. informed her on day one <laughs> that this is going to be a big part of my life forever. This is, this is, this is a lifestyle baby. Oh yeah. So yeah, that's, that's who we are. And the four of us are friends, you know, we've known each other for varying lengths of time, but we've also all hung out in the same room at the same time, which I think is important. We've known each other between 25 years and six months. <laughs> yeah. That's a big range. <laughs> All right, shall Guys, we move wanna, into wanna, the next topic? Yeah, no, I'm I'm taking us into the next topic, Stan. Okay, you Please get to do, do the intro. I get to do the taking us into the dive down, our first dive down into the Is It Phoenix modern deck, which has been picking up steam, steam vents, uh, really quickly, and winning tournaments very quickly. And honestly, I'm afraid of it because I can't. Oh, well, I don't want to pay twenty five dollars each for 
Dave, uh, Stan, what the heck are those phoenixes called, man? It's Arclight Phoenix? They are. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Four mana, three, two with haste and flying. Well, that's that's the least important part of it. Oh, yeah. It also comes right? back from the graveyard to the battlefield if you've cast three instants or sorceries this turn. And that trigger happens at the beginning of combat. Yeah. yeah. So I know that Dave and Stan have been playing a good amount of this deck. Dave, you've been doing some uh, online leagues, and Stan, you've been playing a lot in paper. So I'm really curious to hear you know, your experiences playing it. Tell us about the deck, what its goals are, what kind of cards it plays, you know, strengths, weaknesses, things like that. So we'll just, let's just dive into it. Tell me about this deck. What do you think it's trying to do? Hey, Dave, take it away. I think you've played with it a little bit more than I have. All right. So the first thing I would I would say about the Phoenix decks is just this is one of those things where I think people slept a little bit on a card that was totally worth speculating on because <clears throat> and here's what the tip is. It's a card that comes back from the graveyard for free for doing something that you already want to do. I missed it completely. Yeah, I think that's just one thing to keep in mind is in the future, you know, this card has suddenly become the second most played creature in modern. And part of the reason is that um, it's rewarding you for doing something that you're probably going to do anyway, or something that's really easy to contort your deck around to get payoff from it. So people have been looking at trying to break the card for the last couple of weeks. I think anybody who's probably listening to this podcast knows that. Um, but I think that, you know, I started experimenting with a bunch of different shells. I tried a mono red, I tried mono red with hollow one. And then the one that really started kind of putting up some real results from Ross Marion basically is this, is it, list and you know i think it's logical for what people want to do if they want to cast a bunch of spells in a single turn right is well what has the cheapest cards that replace itself for when you uh when you cast quick quick spells you know cantrips and that would be blue and so that's where the the meta has sort of started to focus um i think it's it's a really interesting deck because it combines a couple of cards that were sort of not under the radar, but we're in other archetypes before and made them just a lot better. So the key to this deck really for me is not so much Arclight Phoenix being great. It's that thing in the ice is great. And Stan, I know, has played a bunch of different lists before with thing in the ice in it. So maybe you want to talk for a minute about how thing in the ice is great and also how Phoenix has made that a little bit better for you. Yeah. So prior to this deck, I was playing thing in the ice in blue, red, Blue Moon, um, kind of a the stock version of that list with two main deck Blood Moons and a V-Click and Snapcasters and some Jace and a handful of Cantrips and direct damage, Lightning Bolt and Burst Lightning. And um, I, f- I find that Thing of the Ice is better in this deck, actually, um, because it's more on an aggressive axis than Blue Moon typically is. Um, I find that that version of Blue Red likes to control at first and then hopefully keep a thing in the ice for a few turns and then flip it and just kind of run away with the game. Yeah. But that deck is also trying to win with Jace, right? Like that deck is also trying to win with Jace sometimes too. So it does swing a little bit more towards control. Yeah. I mean, Jace is uh, really helpful. Uh, I don't think he's, you know, the linchpin, but he helps a lot. Um, in fact, like nowadays there's some blue moon streamers who've cut their Jaces for Rals, which I haven't played with too much. I think it, kind of changes the deck and i don't know whether it's an improvement or not but jace isn't as important to me in blue moon as, as snapcaster mages um 
but that's a much slower deck and it's way less aggressive and thing in the ice is less aggressive in that deck. Um, one of the things that I like right. about the Arclight deck is you can cast and flip a thing in the ice sometimes in the same turn. Uh, usually if you're casting thing in the ice, you're flipping it the next turn. Uh, and I don't think that was often the case for me when I was playing blue yeah. moon, just because it doesn't, blue moon haste, doesn't does run it? manamorphose. No, it does not have. Haste. No, it doesn't have haste. Okay. But I've seen some of these Arclight decks with maximized velocity to give it and probably yes. the Drake haste. Yeah, guys, t- tell me a little bit more about the shell. Like, I understand, of course, it has the arc lights, it has the things in the ice, and it has kind of probably the some of the default cantrips we think of, like Serum Visions. But what else? What else is powering this deck? Faithless looting, faithless looting, and Manamorphose and Gutshot. Right. This is another one of those decks that kind of builds around the core of Faithless Looting and Manamorphose. And it does it in a similar way to it's it reminds me a little bit of and this is gonna sound weird, it reminds me a little bit of playing Bridgevine, mm. which I don't know if you guys have played that deck at all, but it's another deck that is sort of like I gotta get certain stuff in the graveyard, then I gotta do some other things to sort of trigger certain conditions to happen, and then I'm gonna swing in for a bunch of damage way before anybody thinks I'm going to to do it. And so you definitely are trying to do things with, yeah, exactly. Faithless looting, other ways to get the kind of the arc lights into your graveyard. That's one of the main parts of the engine. The other part of the engine is that burn package that Stan has talked about a little bit. So it runs, um, this, the blue red deck basically just runs, uh, gut shots and four four lightning bolts essentially but the lightning bolts are actually really important because they let you have a little bit of creature interaction but they also let you kind of just dome somebody a couple of times for cheap just to get their life total down and um i found that in some ways this really plays almost more like a burn deck because of that that interaction the fact that you're just kind of forcing out as much cheap stuff as you can the ideal thing that you want to have happen i think with this deck in a lot of ways and people can think about this different different ways is that your opening draw is you kind of have two arc light phoenixes, a faithless looting, a manamorphose, and a lightning bolt, and two two mountains. You know. So I have a question about a uh, about gut shot in particular. Yeah. So what are you targeting? I was, I was going there too, Zach. I was going there too. Yeah. Um. So I, I get why you have it in there because it's free to cast, right? But what are you targeting with it? Is it mostly going face? How, how often are you using it to yeah. damage creatures or walkers? That instance. I think it depends. Stan, it depends on the board state. Um, <clears throat> but going to the face for one is fine if it gets a bird out because you're paying two life to deal upwards of four damage or more. Yeah, why not mutagenic growth? Because mutagenic growth doesn't always have a target. Okay. Yeah. Gutshot always has a target. So if you're if you're trying to sneak out birds on turn uh, two, yeah, for yeah. example, there's there's likely not going to be anything you can cast mutagenic growth on. Now I have I'm not gonna say I haven't seen lists with that, because I think it's it's kind of a fun extra card to have, but um it, it's not um it, it has some more, more restrictions that Gutshot doesn't have. Yeah, Gutshot's always doing something and it's essentially free. Mm-hmm. Hey Zach, did you have another question? Oh, um, yeah, but it, it's more about maybe the build of the list and maybe about the show. Oh, yeah, I'll talk about it right now with the shell. So there's no walkers in this. It's just the creatures, correct? Right. Um, with, and sometimes there's the baby Jace. That's a pseudo walker. Uh, how do you feel about that card in the shell? Also discards. I think it's interesting. Um, there's this weird tension with the creature package in the deck. Well, I, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty what the best creature package is because 
some decks run Crackling Drake, some decks run Hollow One, some decks run Monastery, Swift Spear, um, and sure, some sure. some of them drop all of those for Baby Jace. Um, I think there's still room to explore exactly which of those is the best plan. And I'm kind of liking the Baby Jace idea um, because the deck can run out of cards eventually, which seems... Uh, counterintuitive because of all the cantrips you're playing but faithless looting uh doesn't net you it it doesn't leave you card positive right it leaves you card negative so if you're casting a ton of those you just find yourself on turn six or seven sometimes with one or two cards in hand and you know no great lines for figuring out how to get birds back or how to flip a thing in the ice yeah, how how do you typically how, does the deck have any way that it's built into, you know, sort of refill at the end? Does it run like Bedlam Revelers ever? Like, how do you refill your hand, or don't you? You don't. <laughs> okay, so just kind of you kind of just burn out, or you know, hopefully you just you're t- are already set up to win. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's much more of kind of a um, knowing the moment to kind of to go for your big turn. And like Stan said, there's a bunch of ways to have to keep you card neutral when you're casting stuff and not that many things that move you down. But one thing that I found that's really interesting about the blue red deck is that it's not all in all the other is it deck, all the not is it decks all the other Phoenix decks are basically all in on trying to do as much damage as fast as possible early in the game. And the is a deck is not that way. And I think that's part of the reason it's having some success is that good players can pilot it and pick different lines, whether they want to be an aggressive deck or whether they want to be more of something that's a little bit more disruptive or controlling with thing in the ice. And, um, you know, that helps you extend your cards, but eventually you do kind of end up in a spot where you're like, I'm going to fire off a bunch of cards and kind of go from there. Hey Dave, do you have a favorite line? Um, either like trying to get, a bunch of birds out or do you prefer thing in the ice or crackling drakes? So I think it's really draw dependent and matchup dependent. Um, It's, it's one of those decks where you have to be, I mean, that's a positive. This is a good thing about it is that it is, it lets you adapt to the situation, but you also have to be a little bit flexible in the plan that you're going on to try to win in whatever situation you're in. So that's one thing that I found that's good about the deck is that, being able to adapt and saying like, Hey, okay, I'm going up against spirits this, this match. And you know what? Arclight Phoenix is not that great really against, against spirits all the time, especially post board. And you know, the question is, what do I do with them? Do I try to still bring them back from the graveyard? But what you really want in that case is to, to lean into thing in the ice and uh, crackling Drake a little bit more. On the flip side, if you're playing against a deck like Burn or Tron or something like that, where it's like, hey, I just want to go as fast as possible, you have that pathway open to you too, where you go, hey, I really want to try to get in a situation where I'm going to cheat out two Arclight Phoenixes as fast as possible, and then go from there and maybe flip a thing in the ice and just swing in and attack. Because, you know, they're decks where you have to be a little more assertive against them. So guys, what what are the current flex spots? Because I know... I like early on when a deck appears and the deck list isn't, you know, finalized. Like, you know, Grixis Death Shadow became a deck that was like 58 or 59 cards of 60 were set. You know, Bant Spirits, you know, maybe 55 out of 60 cards are set. Hollow One, 60 of 60 are essentially set. But right now there seems to be some flexibility and some variance even in the Is It deck list with Phoenix. So, what have you been experiencing pros and cons with some of the, you know, Swift Spear or not? I've seen 
I've seen zero, I've seen two, I've seen four, you know, Swift Spears, I've seen crackling drakes of different numbers. What are you guys thinking about that right now? I've had some great games where I played a turn one Swift Spear um, and was able to follow that up with some back-to-back birds and you pretty much win on turn three when that happens. But part of the problem with Swift Spear is it gets really bad late game. Um, and it's also pretty bad with a thing in the ice on the board. So I find that the flex spots are either Swift Spears um, or like if you're maybe playing Jace or Bedlam Reveler in that spot. Um, I don't think... Or Crackling Drake. How many Crackling well, Drakes? Well, I, I think Crackling Drake needs to stay in the deck. Like I think you want at least one and maybe two is the sweet spot for that card. Because... And he, he draws a card. Yeah. He draws a card. He draws a card. Uh, he's he can be hard to cast, but you're you're seeing a lot of cards over the course of the game. So finding the lands to cast him uh, is very doable. I, I mean, I've I've certainly pulled it off. Yeah, I've been super impressed with that card. Actually, just because I I played through a league a week ago that I was telling you guys about, or maybe less than a week ago, where you know I went four one. And I had basically no unfair draws with Phoenixes. I ba- I was really just grinding people out with Thing in the Ice and Crackling Drake, and it was totally great. Eventually, you just get to a point where you're playing playing a 12-4 flyer for four mana. Maybe you have a little bit of disruption up to be able to help with that if it's post-sideboard and you're just kind of like swinging in for 12. And it really helps you in matchups where people have, um, you know, people are trying to go... Uh, wide and don't have flyers or something like that where you can just swing and be like you're pretty much dead if you don't deal with this this turn so that's kind of the creature package though i think there are people like stan said are we playing swift spear i've seen some decks recently with uh soul scar mage in um thing in the ice and arc light phoenix seem like the only ones that are really locked locked in for sure i think drake is good enough to be in bedlam reveler so there and baby jace i think baby jace leaves you even more in a control direction so if you're someone who's much more kind of comfortable with that version of it i think that's a way that you can go i think that this deck is better when it's able to get get more assertive but i think i'm definitely going to try uh baby jace too and then the spells are a little bit different. So Stan, what, what were you thinking about kind of when you look at the spell package, have you been tweaking it out and changing things from there? Well, for Faithless Looting, for Manamorphos, um, and I, I think for Opt, have to stay. Um, I think Gutshot is... For Serum Visions yeah, for, as well. For Serum Visions, uh, definitely. I think Gutshot is a little flexible and also um, Thought Scour has been flexible. Um, though I've been... Yeah leaning more and more into more thought scours, which I don't know if this is a good transition point, but we're definitely going to talk about thought scour specifically in the following section. But um, yeah. is a charm manamorpho or I'm sorry, is a charm chart, of course thought scour and gut shot are probably the most flexible cards. And I find myself kind of liking chart, of course more and more uh, because it's such a good card. It's so good. Yeah. It's never card negative. Um, and it plays with the deck, and sometimes, you know, you can be up a card on it if you know the game goes that way. That's another card that's awkward with uh, Monastery Swift Spear, though, because you know it motivates you to cast it after combat, but you know you want to cast spells before you attack with the Swift Spear. So I'm I'm growing more and more right. cold on Swift Spear and more and more hot on Charter Course and Thought Scour. What I really think would be great for us to understand and our listeners is 
if you're if you're playing it, how do you win with it? Like, what are your sideboard decisions like? And if you're playing against it, how do you sideboard against it to try to beat it? Well, I think you just scoop sure. against it and <laughs> tell tell your opponent they've done a good <laughs> job and, and hand it over. I think that's great, Zach. Did you have a question before we move off the how the deck works to talk about the matchups? Uh, about the card remand and how it's not in the deck. And I, I think I understand why, but it seems like a card like that could be good, like returning your spells to your hand, adding to the count and drawing a card. Why is this card not in this deck? I could see experimenting with one to start. Uh, I, I don't hate like bolt remand bolt, but you know, gut shot remand gut shot sucks. Um, but like faithless remand or serum remand or opt remand, like, I don't necessarily hate that, especially if you cast it off of a Manamorphose. It also costs two, and I think the threshold for two mana, two CMC spells in this deck is very high. Like, you, your creatures, you're okay to pay for, but all the spells you want to try to get as low a curve as possible. So what beats this deck, guys? Like, what are you having problems beating? And then how do you try to shore up that matchup, or those matchups? I think Jund is probably pretty tough, because um, you don't put down that many threats, and Jund has a lot of clean answers to creatures. Um, yeah, I love I love casting a fatal push on a thing in the ice. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's pretty pretty insane. That's a pretty insane beatdown. Um, you know, it's a little bit less good against Crackling Drake because you need to keep up the fetch land. Yeah. to do that, or and so you can kind of trophy. navigate around it a little bit. Yeah, or trophy. Um, I haven't had too much problem with the mid range kind of one for one removal decks the problems i've had have been a little bit more with burn and tron basically and that's mostly because burn is just so much more focused and you don't have a lot of ways to kind of recover if you have a slow draw against them thing in the ice helps against their attackers a little bit but then i'm always super afraid that they're going to swing goblin guide into me and then lightning bolt the thing in the ice and then i'm just kind of like great you know i I don't have any way to recover from that uh tron is has been tough for me just because Again, you don't necessarily get enough fast pressure down or early enough in the game unless you get a really broken Phoenix draw. And, you know, then you're, it's not really that you get disrupted by things like Oblivion Stone and the Tron matchup. It's more like you get disrupted by Worm Coil Engine, which is just a nightmare to try to deal with because it gains them life. And, you know, this deck functions a little bit like a burn deck in where some, when someone gains life, you really have to do a ton of extra work to take those extra points of life off. And and what's what's not working against you? Like, I know, Dave, we've talked a lot about graveyard hate, but you yeah. you especially, I know, have been saying that, you know, who cares? Like, like I just I side out some stuff and I just lean on my other cards like I'm just I'm going to win in a different way. I think that's one reason that the deck is really powerful, right? Is that it's attacking from both a graveyard axis and a thing in the ice beatdown axis. And it's hard to be able to fight both of those plans. I think. Yeah. And so it's, it's a little different in this is it deck because, um, you know, the things like, so when I was playing hollow one Phoenix, where it has bedlam reveler in it, that's a card that's really easy to side out when somebody brings in graveyard hate. This deck is resilient. This is it deck is resilient to graveyard hate mostly because it is totally okay. Most of your spells are still okay even with Graveyard Hate on the board, and you can still cast hard cast an Arclight Phoenix later and have it do some work, even if they spend the time putting out a Nile Spellbomb or, you know, whatever, a, a Rest in Peace or things like that. It's just much different because this isn't all in on cheating Phoenixes into play. Mm-hmm. It's much more about kind of controlling 
the flow of the game, figuring out which plan you want to go and kind of moving in, in the direction that makes sense for your draw. And there's really not that many cards that disrupt that plan in here that you lose to the graveyard. Like you do lose your second cast of Faithless Looting. And that's really kind of about it because you can change how you use Arclight Phoenix so quickly. I want to add that I lost to Ensnaring Bridge. I think that's a pretty tough card to beat. And the deck runs um, Sideboard of Braids. And because of how many people are bringing in uh, Relic of Progenitus or Dampening Sphere, I wonder if uh, bringing in a Braid or at least at least one for Game 2 and then more for Game 3 if you see a ton of Artifact-style Graveyard Hate or Disruptive cards whether that makes a braid one of the most important cards in the sideboard that you're going to side in above average. I totally agree. It's probably the first spell that I sideboard in, in this deck almost every time, because you can either go up on the amount of creature kill that you have. If you're playing, like I put in a braids against burn, for example, because I'm like, I'm just going to try to bolt their guys to keep the board clear until it's my time to do stuff. And then occasionally even in burn, you do get in a point where someone throws out the tricky, in staring bridge and like hey i have a braid for this um i think that i think you're right then that's probably the most and so i totally agree that that's the one of the best cyborg cards go so i think that the best way to beat this deck really is probably things that limit the number of spells that you can cast in a turn in in some way and so dampening sphere is our dampening yeah guys we can't have our listeners think that we don't know it's dampening sphere okay constantly want to add an e in there um but I think that that's actually more of a pain in some ways because it just makes it so hard to kind of cantrip through your deck to find the cards that you're looking for. Um, that that Those are the type of things that I think if you want to try to beat this deck, I would worry less about the Phoenixes and more about how to kill Thing in the Ice and how to limit the number of spells someone's going to cast in a turn. It's interesting that you say maybe the best way is to tax or try to prevent I've, I don't play this deck, but I played against it maybe six times at this point, and I found that going wide each time is what helps me win. I'm able to play a P and Cure and LR and you know, sort of spread out and keep blocking until I'm able to ultimate a Koth or playing Snaring Bridge. And I feel like the longer the game went, the less you're going to win, which we touched on earlier. But that's just interesting. Is it sort of the same strategy then of preventing you from winning very fast? Yeah, I think that <clears throat> in my mind, the problem not problem with that strategy because it clearly it clearly works depending on what draw the is it player gets but if they are heavy on thing in the ice and you don't have a way to get rid of it it's easy for them to kind of clean up the board when someone goes wide especially since they can have thing in the ice go off at instant speed so what happens is you know in a scenario sort of like what you described it's like hey okay you animated a mountain with koth and you have p and kira uh nalar out there and the tokens and everything and i just flip it on your turn try to do it in a way that's advantageous to me, like tempo wise, and then swing back in with my guy with the, the transformed horror and hope that that's enough to kind of get me through, um, through what it takes. So there's a little bit of like a game plan for going wide there. I do think that it works. It really just is draw dependent on it. The main thing is just like, I don't really think relic is that good against this deck in particular, because you have to mm-hmm. use relic and Nihil spell bomb is sort of in the same zone because you have to commit when you're going to use it. And I can often recover, refill the graveyard and kind of go on from there. Yeah. Pretty easily. Those, um, one of the things that Emma Handy wrote in an article recently that I liked about sideboarding was kind of the way you think about your sideboard hate cards. And like so the one and done ones are risky. Like, you know, you have to cash it in. And once you cash it in, you're kind of assuming 
that your opponent isn't going to be able to recover. But I think I think many good opponents are going to know how much they need to commit. Like when I'm playing Tron, I, someone's going to not play everything into my O stone, right? They're going to put just enough pressure to make me have to pop that O stone. And then once the O stone is off the board, hope I don't have another kind of sweeper and then they can just recover from it. So I think that's probably the same thing you have to do against a, a relic or a Nihil spell bomb. I think that speaks to a, an interesting tension that I've encountered with the deck is that uh, sometimes you can almost have the opportunity to storm off with more than three spells and you find yourself in a situation where you choose not to cast spells and have to leave them up. And I I don't know, sometimes it doesn't necessarily even feel like that's where you want to be, but that's where you have to be. Just to build off what Stan was saying, I think that one of the biggest things for me as I played, you know, the fourth or fifth league that I did with this was realizing that, hey, you don't want to necessarily always fire off a spell on turn one just because you have something that's going to help you improve your draw. You really want to try to save that for turn two, just in ca- either because you have a hand that you can set up into arc lights or because you have um, the ability to try to draw into arc lights via some cantrips and faithless looting and things like that, because you know, you want to try to compress, condense it into like one turn as much as you can. And sometimes that takes restraint. It's not just kind of drawing into cards and, and having setting up your yourself for a big turn kind of randomly. Instead, you really want to plan out the sequence with this deck. No, I think this is all really good thoughts on this deck guys. I'm glad to get your insights in playing it. W- one last thing I want to ask you, I think it's important for us to think about a deck. A deck is not always good or always bad. Like, you know, modern metagame shifts around. What do you think makes this deck good now? And what might make it worse in the future? Stan, what do you, what's your experience um, been so far? I think that it's given blue-red cards uh, an access that they haven't had um, available to them in the meta recently. Uh, being able to get extra value and maximize the value of casting all the cantrips that Blue Moon or even Jeskai has been casting is, I think, makes the deck more linear and more aggressive, which is where the format is now. So it's kind of put those colors up to speed with a lot of what else is happening in modern um, with the best decks around. Yeah, I, I think part of what makes it good right now is just that thing in the ice is good right now. I don't think that has a lot to do with Arclight Phoenix being good or not. I think it's mostly this version of the deck is good because Thing in the Ice is good. And it makes it better. It does make it better for sure, Stan. Like uh, Arclight Phoenix does make Thing in the Ice a lot better. Yeah, there's not a lot of fatal pushes out there right now, honestly. It's mostly because you're doing, when you're in a metagame that's all linear aggro decks, if you have a deck where you can sort of mess up a little bit, and then also put some pretty strong pressure on at the same time. I think that that helped, that gives you a lot of play against them. If there was a deck that was strong against the wider field that had a lot of cheap removal in it, that would probably make it a little bit less friendly for this deck. But I, you know, I haven't had a ton of trouble beating the rock with this deck, honestly. Mm. And so it's tough to say, I think that they need a little bit faster card advantage than what they have right now in some ways. I'm going to uh, echo off of what Stan said about uh, it giving home to some cards real quick. I think he has a point with that because Thing in the Ice has always been a real card that people have tried in, you know, Blue Moon or Tempo decks and et cetera. And I think this gives home to a lot of different cards that have always been on the fringe of, you know, good competitive decks and pushes a lot of them together in one place. Yeah. 
I mean, essentially, this seems like a you know, um, monastery mentor that works. I mean, it, it, you you cast you cast cheap cards and you make something happen. I mean, I know it's 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 a, it's very different access. You're not making tokens, but it capitalizes on you doing what you know modern is good at, which is casting fairly powerful spells for fairly cheap cost. So it's 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 an access that I, that I think makes sense, and it capitalizes on you know the efficiency of modern's cards. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. It is sort of like a monastery mentor that actually works in this format. Or at least Arclight Phoenix is kind of in, in a lot of ways. Guys, I want to move on to our next segment. Any closing thoughts about, you know, what are you worried about coming to to take away your fun with Arclight Phoenixes? Like, what do you, how do you think people can beat you? Because I actually, I just want to know how to beat you guys because I'm not buying these things. Desphere and, <laughs> and Snaring Bridge is yeah, my biggest I, issue so far. I agree with with that to an, an extent. I mean, surgical extraction is kind of a pain if you're really far into Arclight Phoenix. But on the other hand, like I said, a lot of times it depends on what conditions you play a surgical under and yada, 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 to, to whether it was really worth it. It depends on if I have a diversity of threats. And so, um, Haiti, I, I would say don't try to concentrate on hating out the Phoenixes. Either have um, pressure that you put on in response or make it hard for me to cast spells. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing I would say is, I, before we get off this topic, is that just to continue to welcome Arclight Phoenix to the format as kind of like a new powerhouse, I'm not even sure that this is going to be the best Arclight Phoenix deck forever. And I think that's part of what you were saying to Shane about how decks come in and out of being good. They, um, I, I do think that there's several other options for where Arclight could be good. And I think that if you want to pick up this deck, you really have to be ready to do a lot of interacting with your opponent and a lot of thinking about sequencing of, of spells. So I think a lot of people look at this and go, this is a linear aggro deck, just like other things are a linear aggro deck. And it's really not. And so if you're looking at, for that kind of gameplay, I probably wouldn't even pick this deck up. I would try probably the mono red version, which I think is also very good and very powerful. Or you guys probably know that I have a pretty big soft spot for the, the hollow one Phoenix deck, which is just the most insane kind of, random number generating version of a deck I've played in paper or in, in magic in a very, very long time, but also has turn three kills. And, you know, the is it Phoenix X does not have turn three kills. You have to be willing to adapt with this deck. And if you want to do something where you want to get just really good at executing a plan and having the same plan almost every game and seeing how you do with it, I would try the red version of Arclight Phoenix or even the hollow one potentially, because I both think that they're better at having the same plan over and over again. Guys, uh, I want to bounce out of this segment and move on into our next topic, self mill for dummies. Uh, it's very contemporary reference for y'all. So let's, uh, let's take a break here and we'll go into our next segment. And we're back and we, are going to be talking about self-mill for dummies. And so Stan, I think that this is a good time for you to jump in because the reason we're going to have this topic of conversation is based on some thoughts and questions you had when we were talking in our group yeah, chat. Yeah, so one of the things that I was experimenting a lot with this deck was the right number of thought scour. Um, I tried upping it actually after an episode of the GAM podcast where Jerry Thompson said that if he's playing Blue Red Phoenix, he wants four Thought Scour at, from the get go. Yeah. yeah. Did you call it GAM like like legs? Yeah. 
it's it's yeah, <laughs> nice it's, game. Good, good good game, y'all. You know, it's it's game. It's that's what they say at the end. That's game. I know, but I can't help. I really it, it's really hard for me to pronounce things different than how I read them. In any case, yeah. Well, Jerry said that he wanted four. You should have put that in your bio. I really should. I should. I should treat it like a yeah. disability. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe that was inappropriate. <laughs> I, I don't think that's. I don't think. I don't think that's like an ADA covered. You're definitely agent. right that it's not. Long story short, uh, I had some hard time with Oddscour just because there were instances where I'd play it while I was chaining spells, either to flip a thing or to get an arc light or to get myself out of a tight situation, and I would be losing to my yard cards that are important that I then couldn't even get back. Um, so in our conversation, people kind of made a defense for Thoughtscour and why quote, losing cards to the yard isn't really a disadvantage. If, if anything, it may even be good information because that tells you more about what's left in your deck and what you could draw into. Well, one thing I thought was an interesting point you made and that I wanted to challenge was you were like, I, I, I didn't have control over this, so it felt bad. Yeah. So like you know you you couldn't control what's going into your yard like you could with the faithless right. looting. So like I remember you saying that you were like I want to run more is it charms because it's a one more ex- you know one more mana expensive uh, faithless looting and I just want more faithless looting effects because I'm choosing what's going into my yard and I don't have that control with a thought scour. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I, I've also kind of questioned now how good faithless looting is. So I'm all over the place and. But you're absolutely right that oh, no. that uh, yeah, I don't know like, like the fact that I'm just rolling my wheels in the dark was kind of the hard scary part of Thoughtscour and just having a one mana spell yeah. seemed like maybe I can use that space for something more efficient. So Stan, also I remember Zach saying something that he had in common with kind of that as well, which is. Zach, what was your experience again? Yeah, I forget so, um, exactly. I have one that is recapping, and I have a new one as well that I would love everyone's take on. So Ooh. for the um, – I play Scred and Modern, as you talked about, and you run the four-drop Chandra Torture Defiance. And she has two plus ones. One is you had two red mana. The other one is you exile the top card of your library. You may cast it uh, if it's a permanent, I believe, and, or you just may cast it until end of turn, or your opponent takes two damage. So I would be playing Chandra on turn three or turn four, tapping out for her. And add posting to add red mana, not to flip the top card, because I wouldn't want to possibly lose a big threat in my deck. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. the other one, yeah, so similar, similar concept. Yeah, and then the other one, which is maybe similar but maybe slightly different, is with uh, Sarkon in M nineteen. I've been playing him, plusing him, and not discarding anything. And sometimes my hand will be like uh, a land Sarkon and a four drop dragon, and I. If Sorkon dies, I want to replay it. I want to play the land and the dragon. So it feels like I that's another thing where I yeah. want to use these cards, but is there a better card, etc. Does the Sarkon does he lose? Yeah, he was, that oh, yeah dis- discard to draw. But you can also plus one and not okay. discard. He he rummages is what that's called, usually in the in the in the parlance of magic. Yeah, so you don't know what you don't know what you're going to draw before sure. you discard it. Yeah. Correct. It's it. probably a land. And so Dave, Dave, you're yeah. And in Dave, I know in your in your experiences, you have a little bit you have a few more years experience than all of us, and you had some good thoughts about this topic. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that you hit on it a little bit, <clears throat> Shane, when you were trying to talk about the the fact that not having control over losing cards that go into the graveyard and picking what those are was kind of a feel yeah. bad, right? And and I think that that's that was the thing that I really wanted to have a long discussion about, which we we did kind of in in Slack for a while before this before this podcast, and also felt like it was a good thing to share with people is, you know. Ending up with cards in your in your graveyard that were randomly placed in your graveyard is is not a negative thing in and of itself. Regardless of whether you can get them back, the idea that you randomly draw two cards off the top, you get that card replaced, makes Thought Scour kind of a valuable cantrip in itself, just because cantrips are so few and far between in modern as it turns out anyway just having it replace itself. The fact that the Is It Phoenix deck in particular has um, slight upside where you can either put Faithless Looting or Arclight Phoenix, peel those off the, do- the top of your deck with Thought Scour, kind of pushes it over into where putting random cards in your graveyard is a is a benefit. And I think that the main thing that I wanted to, to talk about here was just, so what happens if you do put a card that you're looking for into your... Um, your graveyard accidentally off of Thought Scour, basically. Let's say that you are really looking for a, a lightning bolt, okay? And you're you're chaining off, and you're like, man, my opponent's at three. I have this plan that I'm running, but if I would just draw a lightning bolt, that would be great, and I would just finish the game. Um, the fact is that it didn't cost you anything resources-wise to put that card in there, and it really doesn't change your odds that that steeply, believe it or not, Um for the rest of the cards in your deck to, to if one of those lightning bolts does end up in your, in your graveyard. Um, yeah, totally. Does it, that it's make just sense hard to think about it everybody. From the I think perspective that, of like yeah. the odds of drawing this card versus the odds of drawing that card. Cause it's when you're playing the game, it's, it is, yeah. it's not just odds. It's actually the card that you see or don't see. Right. And so I think that's, that's one of the huge things that people I think need to do when you, they get into a certain level of play and magic or really any kind of, chance-based game is understanding what the odds are of certain things happening and being okay with the fact that sometimes you're going to hit the wrong thing, mm-hmm. right? Like you, sometimes you're just going to lose. If it's a 8% chance of you drawing a, a lightning bolt off the top with thought scour um, and it's, it's a slightly less chance, you know, maybe a 7% chance after you lose one copy and there's only three copies left in the deck, depending on how many cards you're going to cycle through, you know, that 1% difference is well worth the card and chaining off to, to trigger a thing in the ice or an Arclight Phoenix or whatever. It's also in the case of the is it deck worth the upside of ending up with a faithful suiting or an Arclight Phoenix into your yard. That trade in equity is, is generally totally worth it. And you just have to try to get to a place where you're okay with that being the way that the game works. And one thing that we talked about too is that it's not just you're not just pitching random cards into your graveyard. The deck is designed to mitigate these risks and to take advantage of playing a card like Thought Scour. Like a, a similar thing back when Grixis Death Shadow was super popular. I mean, it still does, it still plays Thought Scour. It's that putting cards in the graveyard is typically good. You can snap, you can snap them back with Snapcaster. Of course, that makes sense. Uh, you can delve for your, you know, your big fish for your tassickers. It's typically it's it's yeah. it's it's 
rubbing, it's, it's cycling through your deck quickly. It's allowing you to get to your 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 money cards and then take advantage of the cards in the graveyard by you know either using Snapcaster, one of the best creatures in modern, or you know like I said, getting to those big beefers that don't die to fatal push. Right, and the thing is that Thought Scour is much more broken in Death Shadow than it is in. Is oh, you it? think so? Absolutely. That's exactly what I wanted to say. I mean, is it Phoenix or any of the Phoenix decks? Don't unless they're running Bubble Rebeler, do not reward you for having cards in the graveyard outside of the Phoenix card. Whereas GDS, like half of your creature package is based on the graveyard. Yeah, Faithless Looting is also a card that is perfectly happy to get milled into your graveyard. So I, I would say there's eight cards in the deck that rewards you for going direct, you know, reward you for directly going in the graveyard. But I think the point remains the same is that the marginal benefit is much lower in the, is it Phoenix deck? So it, it is a less powerful card in this shell. So I think that it's not, I am surprised that Jerry Thompson is like, Hey, I, I mean, I'm not, you know, he's like a hall of famer. Mm-hmm. So whatever, but I, I, I don't think it's as clearly, uh, you know, a four of in this deck because I think it's worse than Serum Visions. It's maybe worse than Opt. It sort of depends on how many you want to, pl- how many one mana blue cantrips you want to play in this deck. But the main discussion that we wanted to have for a minute was just to try to use this as a teaching moment to help people not be results oriented in their thinking. You know, when the odds go against you, you just have to accept that because you're playing a game of chance. You want to make decisions that have the best odds of happening and the things that are going to lead you to the best chance of winning. And Thought Scour is something that actively promotes that plan as opposed to being a detriment in the times where it kind of gives you a beat. Yeah, when I, when I was thinking about this, it's, you know, like, like let's say you're looking for a bolt, right? Like you gave that example earlier and you, you cast a Thought Scour and you just mill over two bolts into your, into your graveyard. You're like, crap, that sucks. I didn't get my bolt. I mean, there's essentially in, in your deck of unknown cards, there's essentially, it's the same thing, right? Like two cards on the top could be the same thing as two cards on the bottom in terms of chance of drawing them. Correct? Or am I thinking about this incorrectly? Correct. No, yeah, so basically you have to look at it as just a giant unknown. So like cycling, you're just cycling to a new card. And whenever you mill over is just, you know, the luck of the draw. And like you said, is that's if you if you look at that and say, I feel bad because I didn't get the cards I wanted, or that I, I, I got the cards that I needed into my graveyard and I can no longer cast them, then you're right. That's 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 just saying I'm looking at the bad experiences and having them outweigh just the utility and power of the of the the single mana cycler. So Zach, I don't know if it, let's let's talk sure. about the example you had with Chandra again. So why don't you explain the scenario that you were feeling there in a little a little bit more specifically, kind of like what cards you're looking for when you're in that kind of four mana. I'm yeah. About, I so just in Chandra that moment, moment when I'm playing a four drop, I'm trying to do it on turn three, turn four, and trying to have a big impact. So I'm playing Chandra, and ideally I want because she's starting at four, I want to take her up to five so she's not going to be hurt, and I worry that when I plus her and flip the card. I'm going to lose Stormbirth Dragon. I'm going to lose maybe even a second copy of Chandra, which we can talk about if that's correct. But I feel like losing her to her, it feels very bad, even if it's not actually that bad. Or just another, or right. a removal spell, et cetera. So there's a discussion right. if it's better to play her on turn five. So in case you do flip over a Scred or a Bolt, you can still cast it. But the idea is generally that I, you're worried that you're missing out on yeah. playing a huge bomb that could maybe help uh, keep the game going. 
Yeah. So remember, so so we talked a little bit about a hypothetical. So we, we decided on in this case of Zach's example to actually do the math because it's a little bit easier than the thought scour example to kind of cook up a scenario where that makes sense. So I, I want everybody to imagine for a second a scenario where you play Chandra My on eyes turn are closed. four and I'm you need. I feel, I feel, I, you, yeah. Please I, close your eyes and can look, I think look. about can I think about turn three? It feels even better. Like off a of mindset. Yeah, sure. Sure. You're going to play Chandra on turn three. And in order to win the game, let's say you're playing against somebody that you really have to put some heavy pressure on. You have to cast a storm breath dragon on turn five, either a storm breath dragon or maybe another four or five drop like Koth, let's say. Yeah. Or has red, et cetera, just or batter skull, whatever you have another big threat in the deck. That's going to put pressure. Yeah. So what I threw out as a hypothetical was, let's say there's eight of those cards in that in your deck, in what's left of your deck, and you don't have you don't have any of those cards in your hand. So what you are basically is you're on a draw to try to establish something, and Chandra um, is on the board, so she can help you ramp into whatever you need to do on the subsequent turn. But you want to pick up that extra damage from from her plus one because you you don't know what kind of a race you're in, and you feel like you want to hit somebody for two. Basically, we we ran the math on this, and what it came out to is that if you're looking for, say, eight ca- eight cards out of forty five ish, you you have basically a seventeen and a half percent chance to draw the right card at, at any point on mm-hmm. your next draw. There, if you flip it and accidentally pull one of those eight cards out of your deck, the difference between those two is only one like one and a half percent. It's less than two percent difference on the next turn. And so, so realistically, even if you do hit one of those eight cards and you only have seven draws left, it really doesn't make that much difference in your odds. I mean, 1%, you know, that's still equity or whatever, but I would say that most times you're probably going to be okay trading that 1.5% for the two damage that you can maybe come back for later if you're racing somebody in a situation like that. It's much like it's much like casting a Liliana and 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 plusing her. Even if you're discarding, say, a land that might be useful later, right? You have a non it's a it's a non symmetrical effect because you have the planeswalker gaining loyalty, right? It does, and that's very helpful. And I think that we talked about this earlier, and I've been more aware of that. And I feel like I've made better plays because of it. And so I have another. Also, there's a the fact that there's. 23 lands in the deck and four mana rocks. So you're probably going to hit that more likely. And that's good. I don't want that. But uh, a question for the Sarkon. Right. So that's a little bit different because that's known information. You know what you're getting rid of to possibly draw something. Yes. Right. So what I would say there is rummage. So I actually think that this is a, a case to not pitch a card for it. If you feel like you already have the card that you want to be playing the next turn, because, um, you already have a plan in mind, and you that would take too be too big of a chance to kind of um, disrupt the plan that you're you're doing that you feel like would be powerful enough. So it's interesting because if the if this was a card that looted instead of rummaged, basically you know draw a mm-hmm. card then discard, you would of course always do that, right? Because because there's n- there's no downside to that at all. But in the case where you have to discard first and you feel like you have a plan. You should just plus Sarkin and not discard and just kind of move on with your turn. That makes sense and it's helpful. Thank you very much. Stan, I'm curious, how how are you feeling? Do you believe Dave or do you still feel like you want to run Sleight of Hand instead of like Thought Scour because you want that control? I definitely would prefer Thought Scour to Sleight of Hand because instant speed is more important to me. Um, I feel pretty good about it. I don't know. It's... It's nice to not have to play the numbers 
random number game or to interact with it as less as possible. And I find that that's kind of something that uh, makes Blue Moon differently. You know, because it's not playing Faithless Looting or Thought Scour, you can be more in control of the game or at least feel like it. Uh, it's hard yeah. to disagree with the fact that it's more of a feel bad than actually losing to something of uh, that you had an impact on. Yeah, it's a feels over reels, perhaps. Yeah. We got to get real. Yeah, I think that this is a, a bit was a big moment for for me playing wise and just kind of realizing that, you know, I think it's it's interesting to hear you say, you know, I don't really want to play the random numbers game. And we really are playing <laughs> a game where there is a huge amount of odds and, and variants that are that come with it. And I think what you have to do is figure out the best way to set yourself for situations where either you understand the odds in the moment that you're in or you've manipulated the odds enough that you are a favorite to win from this position, right? So you want to get over a 50% shot or you want to understand that your plan is predicated on only being a X percent shot. And so in order to make that happen, you need to do X, Y, Z. Um, I think that that is a pretty powerful thing once you start playing that way because it helps you assess situations very quickly. So then do you think you are Phoenix in Modern meets the bar of uh, mitigating the randomness or, or maximizing on the randomness that you get from Thought Scour specifically? Or would it be better off spending an extra mana for a fifth copy of Faithless Looting? Well, we've already had this conversation, Stan. And that's is it is it is it charm is just too expensive? Because you you mean you need to be casting lots of spells and replacing them with the cantrips, right? And so I mean, is it charm cost two and doesn't even replace itself? Yeah. I would say real quick, Stan and I talked about this previous too. Like, is it charm is probably my least favorite spell in that deck, maybe next to lightning axe. They both sort of feel like um, necessary evils. I, I do think having one is it charms pretty good. I think having just because it shores up a couple of different things. It's an extra bolt to kill a guy in game one. It's an extra faith is looting if you need it. So I, I don't mind it as like a, something that fills in corner cases, but I, I don't think I want to go up on them. I do think that Thought Scour in Is It Phoenix specifically is clearly sort of the third best cantrip in in my mind anyway. Um, Serum Visions one, uh, Opt two, and then fill out your deck with with Thought Scours from there. I think it's clearly better than Sleight of Hand, um, just as far as one casting cost kind of cantrips go. Um, that's that's kind of my take on it, and you can see yeah, where we it just goes need Ponder or Brainstorm, and then that problem is solved. <laughs> yeah perfect preordained too. bring them all stan so i want to talk about faithless looting okay <laughs> stan i need you to call me in my personal line we need to talk about faithless looting yeah i'm really happy to talk about faithless looting because this is the first deck i've had that runs that card so i've never had to really think about okay. its plan much before and i'm learning it the card as i'm learning this deck I'm the happiest fly on the wall right now. I love these discussions with Stan. So let's hear. So you feel like you're kind of down on it a little bit. What what has been your experience? I mean, I, I love this as just like a piece of content. Honestly, is like what's it like to play your first faithless looting deck? How what have your impressions well, it's been? It's cool with that? because it does such a great job of setting up explosive plays um, in a way that uh, outside of Storm, I haven't really seen blue red decks do that. You know, like chaining a bunch of one mana spells to do something that's hard to deal with and wins you the game quickly. 
Um, but uh, right. it's weird because I'm used to either cantripping or going up a card and faithless looting brings me down a card and it forces me to make new right. unfamiliar decisions about when I want to play this one mana quote draw spell or not. Um, and it's, I don't know. I think it's unintuitive with other plans that I've had to deal with in the past and thinking of it from the perspective of a player who went from blue moon and Jeskai and more controlled heavy decks. Um, it's just a new plan that I'm kind of wrapping my mind around and, and becoming more articulate and fluent in, so to speak. Yeah. And it just feels bad, right? Cause every time you sit there, you're like, well, I don't want to get rid of any of these cards now that I have no, them that, all. It, that's less of the problem. It's just like feeling like I got to turn five or six and I'm all out of cards and yes, I've been drawing cards constantly and it feels like I've done something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm familiar with that too. I do think it's a tricky thing. the The main power with that card is that it flashes back, right? Like it's incredible for one for one mana to to do the things that it does to try to help set up the rest of your game. But the mm-hmm. the real the real deal there is sandbagging a couple of lands or cards you don't really want so that you can flash back a faithless looting on turn five and still kind of move forward and get your card quality up. Yeah, overall. I mean, it's like a draw too. Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, you do have to put some work into it, and it, you know, it costs as much as a divination. So, in a deck that's really, you know, trying to be light on mana and resources, like like this deck that we've been talking about for the last hour and fifteen minutes, um, it can be hard to feel like you fit space for it. But it's absolutely worth focusing on how to make flashing back faithless looting make sense for the turns that you're having because the power is there. And that's really the the key to it is like it fixes bad draws and then later on you get to use it to rocket forward to something else. But when you're spending three mana in a deck that only runs 18 lands, it's kind of hard to kind of rocket forward when you're flashing it back too. Because by the time you're flashing it back, you're getting pretty low on cards and running out of mana eventually as well. Yeah, no, I I think it's totally true. That's why I, that's why I was kind of saying like you need you need to sort of craft it to make it make sense. I do often find that I get up to five or six lands in this in this deck because faithless looting and can tripping you get to play so many of the lands, um, so you kind of always have something to play. But um, yeah, I do think it's it's hard to do, and there's but it is a powerful engine in itself. At, at least you have the ability to kind of control it and get that kind of half card of value back off of it on the flashback side. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I feel like I've joined a club, the faithless looting club that I've never been in before. And uh, I'm just so happy to be here. You guys. Yeah. <laughs> We're glad to have you Stan. The faithless. That could be our new, like eighties punk theme oh, punk band. So the faithless. Good. You like that? How is that not? A, <laughs> how is that on that not already like a, a '80s synth pop goth band? Let's see. Oh, it, 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 it's a British electronica band, my friend. Oh, it um, is active in the late '90s to uh, early aughts. Hmm. They really overlapped with School of Fish. We should spend some time after this recording uh, listening to their music to see if we could just use that for our theme song instead. I totally agree. What if we just called this podcast The Faithless? <laughs> We're all struggling with our religious identities. Yes. I want to head out of this segment. Um, it's been awesome. We really we have definitely stuck to our guns uh, calling this to dive down. We have spent over an hour 
on our timeline talking about is it Phoenix? I think it's been awesome to learn from you guys. Um, and hopefully our listeners got a lot out of it as well. So we'll head into the wind down. All right, guys, let's head out of this podcast. Let's let's wind this thing down. So I want to hear from you all. What what are you into? What are you loving right now? What are you feeling good about? I, uh, I I'm really into the fact that I bought and read Chandra number one from IDW Comics. Okay, so I got to be honest right off the bat. I'm not a fan of issue one, but I'm going to keep reading at least until like issue three. Um, just maybe you can develop and find its voice and give it a little bit of room to breathe but issue one is pretty bad uh the art is like really bad and considering that it's magic the gathering universe i don't know why they didn't hire a better more uh fitting artist um the story is super cliche the best part about it however there's a brief glimpse in the panel of the plane cald helm Ooh, viking plane yes and it, it like I don't know. There might be snow-covered lands yeah, in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like it's it's an ice world. Hmm. That's pretty cool. I have a quick question. What's what's your over under on number of issues it's going to make it to? Because you said <laughs> you said you were going to read up to three, and I was like, do you think it's going to make it to three? What do you think? Well, didn't they post the cover of number three where? People were really upset that it looked like Tybalt was about to beat Chandra and, and the hive mind was saying Tybalt would never do that. He's not strong enough to defeat Chandra. So the point is, I think I think we know that it's written or, or illustrated up through issue hmm. three. Very interesting. But I don't they know, maybe it'll only that. be one season. Yeah. 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 It's weird that they would that they would be bad art because Chandra is kind of like their cover girl. Like they use her as like the big um, logo on Twitch. Like she's her, it's just her face in red, and she's one of them. You know, she's in every dang set. So I'm surprised that they would somehow. Okay, you know what? I'm not surprised, but I'm. It's intriguing to me that they would mess up the art when she's usually illustrated pretty well. It's more like um, kind of cheap contemporary comic book art than magic the gathering art and i feel like that's a wasted opportunity to capitalize on one of the things that makes magic great yeah i mean yeah is she really ripped like uh-huh. 90s x-men like cable a little bit yeah she, she's pretty lean and and curvy um she's a superhero like she, the comic issue one basically sets her up as a planeswalker who jumps around the multiverse saving people in danger it's super man-esque from in that what way. i've seen of the art it's similar to like the free comic books where it's like superman teams up with the army to do something and they give them away at like fairs like it doesn't seem you know what i mean <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah totally that's that's exactly like what it, it just is. see and like uh when I, the little bit i've seen a lot of the colors and the panels are the same as well so you'll have someone in a brown coat with a brown background and a brown sky behind them and for what yeah. it's worth, I want it to be good. I think magic is really well suited to be told in a as a comic book story. Um, if they put as much effort into the art and story as they do on cards and like even the online literature, um, but this is more of like a weird third party cash in that doesn't feel authentic. Hey Zach, Zach, I have a question. Yeah, for I'm you. ready. Zach, what plane do you think has a brown sky? Um, it's Innistrad, or I imagine, right? 
Yeah, oh, in the actual art that you saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I with the with the brown coat. And yeah, everything. I mean, I could pull it up. I thought it was on. It was Tibbled on Innistra being mad about something. Uh, okay, I was just sort of imagining like, what is this? Really, just lame. Everything's beige. Oh no, lame. it was like, like, like a like a it comes from the beige. Yeah, plane. no, it it looked like a like wow. they were fighting like in an old like a uh, dust bowl or something. Yeah, it's Regatha. Yeah. Okay, sure. Regatha. All right, Zach, you're next. Sure, I'll, I'll be quick with it. Um, right now, what I think is really cool is the amount of uh, mythic dragons that are in standard and playable. I've been playing five color dragons and enjoying it. And uh, there's just a lot of goofy stuff that's very like EDH in a standard environment, which I enjoy. And I am looking forward to ideally another gold dragon being printed in the uh, coming Ravnica sets. Yeah, man. Dragons are fun. Love it. So I'll, I'll go next with mine. So, you know, we've been talking a little bit about um, me playing a bunch of Magic Online, and I just wanted to continue my love letter to manatraders.com. Now, yeah, man, if we, so good, right? If we ever wanted to get a sponsorship from manatraders.com, we would probably welcome a sponsorship from manatraders.com. But I will say it's it's made it a lot easier for me to play modern online, to play um, a lot of different decks, and just be able to look at the 5.0 lists and kind of try something out. There's, of course, tiers in their pricing and things like that, so you have to be conscious of kind of how expensive the deck you're renting is. Sorry, I should explain what it is. It's a rental service for, pay, for uh, Magic Online cards that has a subscription fee. You can check out a deck. You check it back in. They have a way that they charge you for the time that you have the deck uh, in your possession. But it's it's super great, and it's made it a lot of fun for me to play uh, Modern Online to just try new things out. I've done like 15 or 16 leagues in the first month that I've done, uh, that I've been signed up for it. I've gotten to play tons of different decks, Spirits, all the different Hollow One decks, uh, Grixis Death Shadow, lot, lots and lots and lots of different things are available within kind of like the pricing plan. And the, the plan that I have right now is like $35 a month. It's totally worth it. Yeah, man, I'm, 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 I'm loving myself how much you're getting able to play modern with the paternity leave. So get, get a lot of time with your new son and enjoy some time at home playing some magic. Yep. I'm liking it. No, I, yeah, I've, I've been dabbling with mana traders myself. I, I, I don't play as much as Dave, but I, yeah, it's, it works really seamlessly it it's you're able to kind of upload deck lists check out what you need it's 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 sweet i like it quite a bit so if you'd like to contact us anyone from manatraders.com you know where to find us um yeah just to tie a bow on this one i'm i'm loving talking about modern with you guys um it's my favorite format the only format i really play besides draft on arena and online and uh, yeah, I think I love how it's always constantly changing. You know, the concept of modern is that it's pretty static, right? That you can play your cards forever. But honestly, you know, as we're going to talk about next week or the week after, we're going to look at what happened in 2017. Oh, excuse me. We're going to look at what happened in 2018 and see what changed over the year, which was, you know, surprising. It's quite a bit. So guys, it's been great talking to you. Great talking about Is It Phoenix, talking about our level up with uh, Self Mill for Dummies and hearing what's good with you all. And let's uh, talk to you all next week. 